Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my uh, guest is Christian Banak. He's the principal and chief growth officer for a business development and consulting firm in his own name. Now, Christian and I are going to be talking about some of the blind spots, frequently unasked questions around trying to grow an agency. And so the first question is obviously, why did agencies uh, stay small? The next question that I'd like to really de- uh, dive into is, first of all, a little bit about your background. How did you get here? What, what's your history? Could you give us maybe a 60-second rundown on that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, really excited for this conversation. I started, uh, I always was an entrepreneur growing up. I was the kid cutting the lawns in the neighborhood uh, and buying and selling and trading baseball cards. But I had an idea when I was around 18. And I ended up getting a group of friends together and we rented out a banquet hall and we booked some DJs and we went out and, and marketed it to all the local schools and neighborhoods. And, uh, and we threw a, 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 an event and it went over really, really well. And that led to us deciding, all right, let's go out and do another event. And this was a great way for me to pay my way through college. And then after I got out of college, I decided, um, you know, I was still doing these events, um, but I decided to take it a little bit more serious. And I, um, I, at the time, I ended up getting a job as a marketing coordinator at a company, quit that business and went all in on, on the business that I was, uh, you know, these events that I was doing. So we grew into a concert promotions business uh, and it grew really well. We worked with Lady Gaga, we worked with Pitbull. And so we went from banquet halls to big concert venues. And then along the way, we kind of stumbled into working with experiential marketing agency. We got a, a call from one that was desperate for some help. And we came in and we helped them with some you know, street team work. That led to other agencies finding out about us. Uh, and eventually, then the business was part concert promotions and part um, experiential marketing. And things were buzzing along really well for a long time, uh, probably about 15 years. And then the recession hit. And like a lot of the clients I work with now, I had just grown through word of mouth and referrals. I didn't have a sales process, a sales team, anything like that. So I had gone out. I actually I hired a sales consultant. They came in. They helped me get the fundamentals of business development under, uh, under my, uh, my grasp there. What happened is I loved it so much. I decided um, it was time for a change. I closed down my business and I went all in working in business development roles at agencies. And I did that for about 10 years. Discovered that my superpower was really top of the funnel, generating leads with big enterprise companies. And, you know, the back of my mind, those 10 years working agencies, I always wanted to do something on my own again, but I wasn't sure what, when or how. Huh. And then what happened with the pandemic it was sort of deja vu to the recession. Companies were going out of business, struggling. And I felt like I was in a different spot. Like 10 years prior, I needed the consultant to help me. And now I was like, hmm, I think I'm the consultant that can help others. Okay. So I left that. So- Question of the hour, what, what would you advise agency principals and owners to do to prepare for what's to come? Yeah, I think the number one thing that they need to do is they need to take a more proactive approach to their business development efforts and build a pipeline and start building relationships that then they could use and leverage you know, down the road. When those inbound opportunities may not be there, if you know you have a good pipeline, it's a, you rest a lot easier at night. Right. Okay. So in terms of the picture that you're, uh, or the assumptions that you're making about what's to come, I'm not necessarily asking you to go into a crystal ball. Um, but uh, for the uh, the market that you operate in within the agency and MarTech space, what are you expecting are going to be the big issues that they have to prepare for? 
you're seeing it already that some clients are pulling back on their spends. They're becoming more conservative. They don't know what to expect, you know, because of this looming recession that we're in and high inflation and the pandemic is still, you know, around. So, you know, you can expect that some of your clients and prospective clients aren't going to be spending as much money. They may be more conservative in some of the approaches and marketing that they're doing as well. There may be, you know, uh, less of an appetite to experiment with new things and, and just kind of stick with, you know, what they know uh, works. I mean, I think there's a lot of research out there that proves that it's probably not a good, um, a good approach, but you know, nonetheless, that's what you can expect from a lot of companies. So, so what, what are said, the blind spots that people need to be aware of that they may be falling into the trap of making the ba a bad decision? What we are advising our clients on is just like they're out there talking to their, their clients, so brands and companies, uh, how they need to continue to invest even despite the recession, maybe invest even more. We're telling our clients the exact same thing. It works both ways. So you don't want to, you know, pull back on these efforts, if anything, they become more important now than ever. So the agency market and MarTech space are massively crowded. There's a cigarette paper difference between most agencies in a space. They all sound and look pretty much the same. So how do you differentiate in a crowded market where there's a cigarette space between you and the next guy, where customers have been conditioned by the industry to essentially drive a lot of free consultancy through the pitch process. And you're going into a recession. Times are tough. Cash is hard to get hold of. People are tightening up. Interest rates going up. So organizations that have debt have to service that debt. You've got salary inflation. You've got the arms race around technology. The MarTech space, there's over 10,500 vendors in that space at the moment uh, and growing. and they must be looking ahead, thinking, how do we survive this? Yeah. So what do they currently believe is impossible because of what you know, you know is possible, and it could be a game changer for them? First off, I think it boils down to positioning uh, is, is where you're going to start to differentiate yourself from you know, the other agencies or MarTech companies. That's always the first thing that we work on with our clients is to really understand what we call the problems, the pivotal problems that they solve. A lot of agencies are really focused more on, you know, well, we build websites or, you know, we do advertising. Well, that might be the output and deliverable, but you're here to solve a problem. We really want to help our clients get really clear on what those problems are. And then we start to think about who has those problems and can we demonstrate an expertise servicing a specific niche and, and demonstrate that through the work that you've done and the services that you offer. And then you slice it again, you know, what are those specific services, you know, to come out and say, well, we do, you know, marketing, you know, that's, that's going to be way too broad. You know, what specific in marketing are you experts at and to whom, and what are those problems that you solve? I think that is going to be the key. Once you start layering it down and, and becoming, you know, more specialized, then that's when you know a brand that is experiencing that type of problem. They, it's much easier for them to find you and for you to you know get their attention, knowing that you can solve something very specific for them. So to unpack this, there are two really important takeaways. The first one is you need to look through the eyes of the customer and see the world through their lens, and recognize that they have a job to get done, 
And there is a community of people whose job it is to execute that job. And it's not necessarily the people that you have in your ICP, they're the people that you're targeting. Uh, you need to look more broadly, especially nowadays, because uh, if you're an agency selling into enterprises and going after the bigger budgets, there will be committees of people who are involved in both evaluating and deciding on where they're going to invest their money. There are key influences that you need to under, uh, understand and know of. And there's a, a cast of characters. And the bulk of the business, from the sounds of what you're describing, will only come from your medium to long-term pipeline. And looking at a solution like outsource business development to just feed the short-term transactional pipeline is a massive mistake. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, absolutely. We get these calls all the time, you know, well, it's the end of the year, you know, we're in this Q3, we need to close business, you know, before the end of the year. And unfortunately, I, I hate to say it, but you should have been having that conversation six months ago, 12 months ago, you know, with me, uh, you know, not in, you know, uh, when we've already, uh, you know, halfway through the, the third quarter here. So, and they've got a six month sales cycle. Yeah, exactly. You know, certainly, certainly can't. I, I wish I had a magic wand and, and could condense that down, but uh, we're good at what we do, but we're not that good. Let's put it that way. So, yeah, you, you really got to have a long term mindset. My magic wand is really very powerful. It dispels what's it, unrealistic beliefs and disappoints people a lot. <laughs> okay. So, tell me this then what do people really need to do differently so that they meet the customer where they are? instead of where you want them to be. Because if you look at the way most sales and marketing functions are set up, there is scant attention paid to where the buyer is in their journey. Some of them don't even know they have a requirement and they um, may sort of stumble across a few symptoms and they make space to um, uh, work out, is there a problem there? Once the problem persists, they move into passive looking and there they're trying to learn how. They're not doing anything proactive. And a sales call at that point is just going to irritate them at best and will probably just be bounce off like water off a duck. When they're in active looking, then it's viable to have a sales conversation with them. But that could be three to 36 months prior. If you haven't done all of that nurturing, then when you turn up, chances are you'll only have one to two points of contact within the account. And that's meant to cover an evaluation team of six to 16 people. Now, you essentially, when you do that, you're putting yourself into a crapshoot. So my question is this, do your clients, when they eventually overcome their need to satisfy their short-term fix, do they come to you and say, well, what we'd like you to do is build that medium to long-term funnel and then help us to nurture that? Yeah, the clients that, that get it, Certainly, that's the mindset, and the clients that we have the long-term success with, you know, are thinking more on the medium and the long-term. Right. So, describe to me the difference between the long-term success and the short-term failure. Yeah. So, I would say on a short-term failure, it's you know you're coming in, and you know you're the expectation then is that we're going to mass, send out a mass blast of emails that are going to go out. And somebody's going to respond and then you're going to get on a call and they're going to tell you, oh, yeah, we have this need. You're going to take an order and you're going to go and do a project. They oftentimes, you know, treat outbound like inbound. You know, inbound is different. They've now, 
They're in that active buying cycle. They have a need. They've reached out to a number of different prospects, prospective you know, vendors for themselves. It's a different sales conversation. It's a different type of an approach when, uh, than outbound. So on an outbound, what we advise our clients to do is, again, you're thinking more midterm, long-term play. So we don't even like to have sales conversations. We don't call them sales conversations. We help our clients, you know, what we call insights meetings. So I talked earlier about problems. So think about the problems that you solve for clients. And what is your unique perspective on how a brand can solve that problem? What provocative ideas might you have around that? New insights, proprietary research, different proprietary tools or processes, research you've done, like anything that is insightful. And then the idea then is you go to those businesses that you think might be experiencing those problems and you tell them, hey, we think you might be experiencing this problem. We've got a really interesting perspective on that. We're interested in getting to know you and we'd be willing to you know, spend an hour together to share some of those insights with you. Very different conversation than a sales call this is now getting some smart people together, some thought leaders, subject matter experts to have a conversation unpack. This is what we're seeing. This is what, what, what you're seeing. And that is the way to start a relationship off. And from there, that is the first step. And then you can continue to nurture that lead over, over a long period of time. But a lot of times in that initial conversation, you they may understand that they have some problems, but you are hopefully unpacking other problems and uncovering other things that they're experiencing that they may, and again, they're probably not actively looking for it, but you've helped them uncover that. Right. So now that uh, this is really a question about how you manage the expectations of your clients, because uh, I, I work with a lot of biz dev and growth consultancies. And because of a failure to manage expectations right from the off and then keep reminding them, because sometimes they forget of what your responsibility and accountabilities are and what's within your locus of control and what they have to own and control. What, what is it? Uh, I'm, ge- I'm guessing um, that nine out of 10 will have given scant thought to what their involvement is in the biz dev outsourcing relationship. So could you paint a picture of what a client can realistically expect to need to commit to in the first 120 days? Yeah, it's a great, great question. And yeah, it's often overlooked. I, I, we really try to stay away from the word outsourced because I think it gives the wrong connotation of oh, right. what the relationship actually is. It's more of a partnership. It's a collaboration. We're an extension of your team. Outsource means we're going to handle it all. Right? We still need to be collaborative. And, you know, so for us, you know, we really like to spend the first, you know, 30 days really in a more of a discovery and strategy to uh, understand, again, those problems, the audience, you know, what type of insights you have. So, you know, we really believe more in, you know, measuring twice um, and then cutting once. Um, Now, with that said, uh, you, there still needs to be, I think the the foundation for all of this is really that um, understanding the problems that you solve and understanding what having some sort of unique point of view. um, and, And those clients of ours that don't have that and don't have any sort of thought leadership already, it's challenging. And, and I think a lot of them don't realize that, you know, we can't make this up for them. This, you know, we we are the experts at getting a message in front of the right decision makers and converting that into a, in a, to a meeting. But we still need the thought leadership, the expertise that we can take and package and go to that. I think it speaks to something else as well. And I'm really curious from your perspective. As the owner of the business, and you're looking at 
your spiraling costs because salary inflation, there's full employment in the UK and the US when it comes to sales, pretty much. On LinkedIn two months ago, there were eight jobs for every applicant. Now, that's really very telling. A lot of people are leaving. People are setting up side hustles. So as a small to medium-sized business, which 95, 98% of agencies are, they probably won't be able to afford the salary inflation. Then you've got the arms race around technology because for a full-time do-nothing-else kind of firm like yours, you have to invest in that. And I'm guessing each month there's an eye-watering subscription bill for technology. And then on top of that, you've got the arms race for data. And in this day and age for Outbound, the entire foundation is the list and building the list. Because if you could build the wrong list, you're digging the hole in the wrong place. It's not going to make any difference how good you guys are or they are or whatever. So in terms of managing that expectation and making sure that they are enabling you to be successful, then when you hand over, they can run with it. Because otherwise, they're just providing excellent leads that they burn. So I'm curious, how do you manage those expectations? What do you have to do? What are the, what's the onboarding process look like? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's a great question. So we, we do have an onboarding process and I can't tell you how many times I've been told, oh, we have all that. We'll just send it to you via email. <laughs> we don't, you know, we, we, we've gone through all of this before and our answer is no. We need to spend this time together whether you have it or not, um, you know, there, we're still going to need to immerse ourselves in it and to have discussion around it and make sure it fits into our system. And we do. We sometimes will need to walk away from clients, potential clients, um, because they, they don't want to spend the time you know, to do that. Uh, so that's a good way to weed out, I think, some of those. Uh, if they're not willing to do that, I can only imagine what type of client they would be on a long-term basis. So, so that's helpful. Help. Another thing that we do, and and uh, you know, I know there's a lot of other lot of thoughts on this, but you know, we really strive to have um, one year engagements with our clients. I know there's others in the space that do month to month type of uh, agreements, but we've experimented with that as well, and I think it just sets the wrong expectation from the company thinking that on a monthly basis there's going to be these leads. We're very upfront with our clients that we need a year because that first six months there's a lot of piloting and testing, and on top of that there's a sales cycle. So even if we're getting meetings those first few months, you can't expect them to close right away either. So usually the, the business wins start to come in the second half of the year versus you know the first half. So again, I think that it's been helpful for us to align ourselves with those types of companies that are thinking long-term, are willing to make more of the requirements and investment of, of their time and resources. What are the values that those clients share? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think they do. They do have the, the best clients that we have do think long term, and they recognize that. You know, we are we are one piece of their sales and marketing. You know, function. We are not the only thing that they have from a sales and marketing. So they really do value this. And and a lot of clients, you know, they they don't. You know, they they they're again they come from a different world, a different background. They want to experiment with it, but. This hasn't become yet part of the DNA of the organization. And, and we do. We hope and we try to help them get there. But the ones that really knock it out of the park have already, have already gotten to that point already. So just to hopefully frighten people away from thinking 
that it makes sense to uh, build this in-house. Describe the technology stack that you've had to build just so your people can function. Yeah, this is certainly a pain point because I've been on the other end where I've been hired to come in at a place, work as a full-time before I started this. And then there's no investment in any of the sales tools and you're just, you know, handcuffed. So on our end, I mean, we, we look at it in a few different buckets, you know, from a CRM, uh, you have to have a CRM. So there's an investment, whether it be a Salesforce or HubSpot or something similar, but you have to be able to track your activity and your funnel. Then there's, you know, sales engagement platform. So what are you using to set up your sequences and your emails? Are you using a dialer? For us, again, to get the scale that we need, we're using, you know, we're using these types of technologies and these. How many conversations do your people have per hour? I would say, you know, we're, we, again, we're using a dialer right now. So, yeah. you know, we're probably, you know, three or four conversations in an hour with the dialer. Okay. Uh, without, without the dialer, that might be three or four the entire day. Okay. So with a dialer, uh, you can probably get um, 3X. Uh, with a parallel dialer plus the data and the human navigator, something like Connect and Sell, you can get six to 20 conversations per hour. But that depends on the quality of the list. So how much do you spend typically per campaign on data? Yeah, on the data, I mean, we're, you know, we're using Zoom Info. We have another resource, Winmo, which is very advertising marketing specific. We use LinkedIn Sales Navigator. But, you know, yes, we have those tools, you know, that we pull lists from, but then we have humans that are going through those lists because, you know, you can't just pull a list of companies and, and prospects and, and just start blasting it up. You have to, and, it takes a human touch to it as well. And on average, to get a campaign started, how long in terms of effort, human effort and time, does it take to put together a clean list that's being verified for that it's phone ready? Yeah. So that you're not wasting uh, your time talking to uh, dead numbers and gatekeepers and voicemail. I mean, for us, I mean, we're able to do that in, you know, within a couple of days, we can turn around a verified list because we just have the system process, dedicated people. This is what they do day in and day out. But if somebody was to try to take this on themselves, what we could do in two or three days might take them a week or more. Right. Okay. And then uh, the analytics piece. So do you use any conversational analytics, Gong, Chorus, anything like that? You know, we don't necessarily, I mean, we use some of that for ourselves, for our own internal yeah. sales operations. But in terms of our clients, you know, we're really just more so getting them that first meeting and then they are responsible for what no, happens. No, no, no. But, um, but my point, my, my question is really, if they were building it in-house in order yeah. to help them. So, you know, what are you looking at in terms of outlay per head for that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I couldn't tell you what the what the cost right now for, for Gong uh, or Chorus is. You know, we would definitely, I mean, if you're doing uh, any decent-sized volume of, of uh, discovery calls, you know, you should, you should have that type of technology so you can optimize. So there's a whole nother, you know, cost, uh, you know, that's often, so, again, overlooked. So just on buying in or renting that stack, you're probably looking at what, about five to seven grand per rep per, per year? Yeah, I would say probably even a little bit more than that. Yeah. Right. So add that to the salary. So SDRs, BDRs are going, what, 35 to 50, quite comfortably, plus commission. Yeah. I mean, well, what we're seeing here in the US at least is even more than that. You know, for, for those that are, that are at least coming with a couple of years of experience, and that's even for us, you know, if you're just starting off, you don't want to hire somebody that has never done this before, uh, because you need someone to hold their hand and to manage them, to train them. And if you're a small company, 
you know, you don't have a sales manager that's able to do that. So you really need somebody that's going to come in with some, you know, some experience already. And, and you've not now touched on another really important point in agencies. The uh, I worked in agencies for years. And what I've seen is that because they don't really understand sales, they hire people and they're expecting one thing and the salesperson does something very different and then they fire them and they have this revolving door. So the biz dev function within agencies tends to be what, 12, 18 months? Yeah, I think it's about 12 months, 13 months. Yeah. Right. Well, the data on this is really clear. Salespeople hit their full stride somewhere in year three. Now, if none of your reps ever get beyond year one, you're spending money on hiring, recruiting, training, onboarding, provisioning. Then you let them loose on your data and your leads. And then they burn through all those people. And there are many customers who will never do business with you because of the experience they've had. And the true cost of a wrong hire in enterprise sales in tech, it may be different, it will be different than others, but it's anywhere between 35 and 125 times salary. You're about to hire, the, uh, spend the price of a mortgage every year on hiring this person. Make sure you hire the right person first time. So another fantastically good reason for outsourcing to people with experience is they can test your messaging and do all of that stuff quickly, giving you time to patiently hire because you do not want to make a wrong hire. It's the single biggest hidden cost in any business and it will create a nightmare for the manager. It's a false economy just having a warm body in a seat. Absolutely. Okay. So in terms of the complexity of trying to put together a BD team, what are the challenges that someone would face if they were considering trying to do this in-house? Yeah, uh, I mean, starting from the top, uh, what we just talked about recruiting uh, in and of itself, trying to find somebody to come in. It's very competitive market right now. So getting somebody in there, what we're also seeing, at least in our space, which is again, more advertising agencies, most of the BDRs they want to they want to work in more of a sexy you know SaaS type brand, and they want to then you know within a year they want to be promoted and and move into an AE role. They don't want to be in a, in a BDR role. So finding somebody that wants to work in an industry that maybe even has some sort of background in advertising and marketing, it's more challenging in, at least in our industry. And and trying to find people that have some level of experience already that aren't looking to just use this and jump into an AE role right away. So recruiting is very challenging uh, right off the bat. You know, if you're starting this from scratch as well, I mean, just thinking about it differently than what you're used to. If you've not done outbound before, just because you've been a successful uh, agency does not necessarily mean it's going to transfer over to outbound immediately. You have to think about it differently because these are not inbound leads and you're not taking orders and just responding to an RFP. You are trying to create demand for your services to prospects that don't have any relationship or knowledge of you. So that is a whole nother mindset shift that most are not thinking about. Right. So what are the bits that people probably overlook because they don't think, uh, you know, they've never given it any thought. And as a result, when they go blundering with two left feet, they end up just irritating the prospect. I think one, one is sales cycle is longer and outbound. You know, again, if you're going to relate it, well, we close our leads in, you know, 30 days or 60 days, that's inbound. They've come to you. They have a need. They have a budget. They have all of those things already. Outbound, it's going to be double, triple, maybe even longer than that. You're, you're here in outbound to build a relationship 
which is a different mindset. So if unless you go into it with that, you're going to fail and you're, you're going to be a couple months in and you're going to think about, oh, this isn't working. And it, it, it could be working perfectly, but you just have the wrong idea of what, what those metrics should be and, and what success actually looks like based on the stage of where you're at. Right. Okay. So this will be useful for people. What are the questions that they should be asking their outbound agencies prior to retaining their services as their partner in order to ensure that they're hiring someone who knows what they're, uh, what they're doing and is both credible and reliable? Yeah, a few different things. I think finding a partner that has worked extensively already in your industry is going to be helpful. We work a lot with agencies, so we can onboard very quickly because we understand that world. If I were to be approached from some other industry that I've never worked on, the process is going to be a lot, lot longer. So you want to find someone that specializes in your industry already. You're going to want to make sure, you're going to want to ask about their approach too. Is it mass emails that are going out and, and just kind of dialing for dollars? Or is this really a more strategic, personalized based approach? Because again, you don't want some agency that's going to come in here and potentially ruin the reputation of your company because they're just sending out mass blast emails and burning through lists. Uh, and there's a lot of bad actors that are out there that are, that are doing you know, that type of work. So you want to really drill down and understand what their, what their process is and, and how hands-on and white glove it really is. You're going to want to know also who's working on your business. Are these folks that are you know, onshore um, here or, or are these outsourced people that are, are working you know, overseas and, and don't speak you know, your language very well? Because again, you're not going to see, you know, great results uh, this day and age from, you know, from that, from workers. I mean, nothing against that, but we believe that really, if you're going to, if we're going to call a CMO or a CEO of a company here in the U.S., you know, there has to be, uh, that language cannot be a barrier, you know, to that. Uh, and, and the quality of work then, you know, as much as they may try to do well, I think that's also important is understanding, you know, where is the team base that's going to be working on and, and getting to meet those people before you sign any sort of contract with them is also key. So from your perspective, what does your operating rhythm look like in terms of how you, uh, as the founder and your team, engage with your clients? so that there's that frequency of touch, that intimacy. So what we do is we, first off, we take a team-based approach. We have really kind of four distinct functions. So we have what we're, we call the business dome director. This is someone very senior that is the strategist. So really helping with those problems and the audience and the offers. And that's the day-to-day contact with our client. We're available. I mean, we're, we're meeting with our clients on a weekly basis to review results, to talk about strategy for upcoming campaigns, to get feedback on, you know, how best should we respond to, uh, you know, objections to, you know, even if they're interested in and things. So, you know, what type of transparency, I think that's another question back to your other question, what type of transparency that they're going to provide is also another key. So, but back to your team question. So we have the business director, they're working through that. We have our data team then that is building out all of these lists and finding the, the phone numbers and emails. We have a copywriting team that is, that is writing all the different emails and writing the, the cold call scripts and doing all that personalization. And then we have our business health manager or BDR, and they're now more the frontline person that is actually sending the emails, doing the cold calling. So on a, on a week-to-week basis, we're meeting with our clients weekly. When we have a positive response, we're you know looping back with them 
we're providing weekly reports, and then we provide a monthly kind of more in-depth wrap-up report for them. So it does take, again, you know, to just think you're going to outsource this and this, that's it. It's, that's not how this is going to work best. So what I'm hearing you say is that if they hire in a BDR, that BDR will also have to do list building, list cleansing, sequencing, sequence building, copywriting, outreach, outbound follow-up, and then multiple follow-ups because no one's there on the first call. And you're going to pay them 50, 60, 80, 120 grand to do seven jobs. Right. Yeah. And okay. we just found that that's unrealistic. First and foremost, I think separating the closers and the hunters, the prospectors is, is key, right? So we, our whole model is you're the closer, we are the prospector. But within the prospecting, what we've found is that it's trying to find a unicorn that can do all of those things, you know, really, really well. This person that's going to be in their day-to-day in spreadsheets, building lists and, and doing that type of work is not probably the same, is not wired exactly the same way that the person that is going to be cold calling all day long and loving having, you know, conversations and able to take rejection and may not be the same person that is going to do research into companies and be able to find different nuggets in, in different resources on how to personalize the right email. These are so different skill sets. So how did your relationship change with your customers in relation to this level of intimacy and accountability when you move from the three-month contract to the 12-month contract? It aligned us you know, much better. I think the upfront strategy work that we do, and we spend a lot of time having them understand what the process that we have here, I think that was key for us also is we, we have codified a process and our clients are very familiar you know, with that process. So I think it's given them a greater level of appreciation of the amount of work that actually does go into what we do. And I think it's then made them, you know, more understanding of and manage their expectations better on what's realistic and what's not. And so when you're managing expectations, what is a realistic timeframe for them to start uh, breaking ground, start realizing the benefits, break even, and then to achieve a good level of profitability that meets with their ROI requirements? So you know, do they need to get $1.30 back for every dollar they invest or do they need 5 or $10 back? So once we've spent our one month in strategy, we go into market and, you know, we're, you know, we're generally starting to set some meetings in that first month. Uh, you know, we're, I, I think because of the strategy work, we're able to start seeing some results. Now, I would say it takes maybe up to the first three months to really start getting into the rhythm because what we're also seeing is just because you send out an email and someone expresses interest, it could still take two months to actually, three months to actually have that appointment actually happen because calendars are busy, these executives are running around, things change. Timing. Timing, yeah. So, you know, so it takes, I think, three months to really start getting into a good rhythm of the number of meetings. And then we know there's a sales cycle. A lot of our clients, it's three months, six months, 12 months, right? So in terms of when you start seeing some wins start to come across. Usually that happens in say month seven to 12, you know, of our relationship uh, with the client. Now those projects, they might start up as projects. So they might be smaller in nature. You're not necessarily going to win a million dollars, maybe right out of the gates. So, you know, where the ROI really starts to happen is in the second year, you know, of the program. And, you know, we like to see our clients, you know, once they've invested, you know, in, in, in it for two years to have like a 10x type of return, but it takes patience and it takes an investment of time and money to get to that point. 
And it's really frustrating at times when you see a client, you're six months in, well, we haven't won any business yet. This isn't working. They pull the plug. And it's like, you know, you, you went through all of this and you pull out way too soon. Yeah, it's a perennial problem. And one that I think is a byproduct of who we've recruited as our leaders. I think the last 30, 40 years, there has been a real focus on growth at any cost, on delivering value to shareholders, but it's been run by finance people. And without being overly disparaging, they don't really take into account the human factors. And as a result, they burn through enormous amounts of staff and resources because they create the conditions where people are set up to fail and they leave because there's just, you know, why should they stay? The other problem is their expectation is all about instant gratification. But if you want to make profit, the real profit comes in expansion sales. So this is just a study on SaaS, but it was a 2019 study by Bank SaaS, and they found that 18% profit came from new business, 170% from upsell, and 1150% from expansion sales. So I'm really curious. What um, Chris Dannon, who was uh, Zig Ziglar's right-hand man for years, 35 years, he taught me something which is really valuable, which is when he prospects, he prospects for a customer who will be a customer in 15 years. Mm. And that's a very different mindset. You know, you get reflected back what you project out. And I, I've been teaching my reps to do the same thing. And as a result, they end up having a human-to-human -human conversation with a much higher conversion rate on first contact because the average, and this is from 80 million cold calls, the average conversion from effective to first meeting is 14 conversations. So you have to have 14 effectives to book one meeting. But on average, it takes 33 to 46 dial attempts to get through to that one effective. So you're talking about an enormous human tariff here. Yeah. Um, and if you're really interested in keeping profit, and having money that you can invest, money you've collected and you can spend, then it does make sense to really focus on different questions, such as how can we apply the same resource and skill for higher return? So I'm really curious, long-winded way of getting here, what are they doing about using your resources and partnering with you to build their partner network? to identify people who already have hot relationships with their cold market. And if they built relationships with those people, they would be selling hot through someone who is already intimate with the customer and has a very low barrier to entry. You know, most of our clients are not thinking partnerships. They should. I would say where we've started to do which is related. And I think we're seeing really good results from it is, you know, we've kind of separated things out to what we call cold and warm outbound and yep. cold outbound, meaning you don't have any sort of relationship with that organization. Uh, it, you're just going in cold, right? Pretty straightforward. Warm, on the other hand, is you might have a relationship. And what we find is a lot of our clients, they've done a great job building up their LinkedIn network. These are people that have been in business, you know, 15, 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm but they do a very poor job of nurturing those relationships that they've built. They, co they collected you know, a, a friend request or whatever on, on LinkedIn, but they've done nothing with it. 
the reality is these people are moving on to different organizations. These might be clients that have moved on. These might be employees of yours that now have gone to work client side. Other people have gotten promoted. So I think if you're looking for another idea on how to maybe close something a little bit more near term is really look at your own network. And so what we've started to do for clients is we would actually download their LinkedIn contacts across their executive team. And then we filter it according to the ideal company profile, the buyer personas, and we end up with a list of, you know, a few hundred decision makers or influencers at companies that they want to do business with. And then we do outreach to them. And it's still somewhat cold because they haven't necessarily identified a need or anything yet. So they're not coming to us, but there is that connection. They already know, like, and trust that individual. So we've done some really effective campaigns that way to start to reactivate these relationships that have just sort of gone cold because these folks haven't done anything with it. So I think that's something that, that it, you know, you should always kind of keep your eyes on that, um, you know, because it's one thing, again, to, you, you meet with these folks, but what are you doing to actively keep them engaged? Well, a really simple exercise anyone can do is just look at your historical customers for the last two years. How many of them are buying everything they possibly can from you? Those that aren't, those are prospects, and they've already bought from you. You're already on their payment system, so you don't have to go through that headache. What are you doing to get referred into their family tree? sister companies, parent companies, subsidiaries, overseas subsidiaries. What are you doing to get referred into their supply chain? Uh, you know, a lot of their suppliers could probably use your services. What about their partners, channels, strategic alliances, JVs, alumni, people who've gone elsewhere, customers, customers. All of these represent a fantastic opportunity for you to get referred. And if you're using a partner like Christian, then why not have them focus on building those additional relationships? Because remember, when it comes to the decision, it's different from the evaluation. The evaluation, the RFP, all of that stuff is not necessarily the same people who ultimately make the decision. They could be a different committee. There may be some of the same people, but if you've got a groundswell where you have a dozen people who support your case and your three competitors have 1.65 each, which is the average, you're going to have a lot more support. Now, that social proof carries an enormous amount of weight in many organizations, not all. You'll still have people who have leaders who say, I'll take a captain's school and do whatever they like. But the people who have to live with the decision, who are the beneficiaries or suffer uh, the byproduct or the, the after effect of making the wrong decision, those are probably the people on the evaluation committee. Those are the ones that you need to get close to. So the type of campaign, I, you know, I'm, I'm very frustrated because I see so many people focus on the cold, cold market exclusively when there is this latent pool of business that's already warm to you and people are wasting. So when you've seen people do that, what has been the compact, if you look year on year or quarter on quarter, what was the difference in actual revenues as a result of going back to those existing customers? I mean, the sheer number of, first of all, let's just start at the top, you know, the conversion rate of how many people you reach out to cold versus warm, I would say probably around 5x the number of meetings you're able to get um, by going after the same people. So you're starting with more meetings right out of the gates. We're finding that the sales cycle uh, or those opportunities then moving to an opportunity, those meetings turning into an opportunity, um, at least double or triple the number than if you're going cold. 
And then that sales cycle, we're also finding, you know, maybe, you know, less than half of what it would be from a cold. So you're having more meetings, getting more opportunities, and you're closing them faster. Okay, so let's just unpack this So for the, uh, the finance directors who may be listening. Okay, when you think about what your cost of customer acquisition is at the moment, and you're 5xing the number, you're halving the sales cycle. So your cost of sale and your cost of customer acquisition has just gone down to less than 10% of going cold. Now, we know from the research that it costs six to, six, uh, six to 16 times more to win cold new business than it does to win warm new business. Hot new business, it's even a fraction of that because hot closes roughly 64 to 81% of the time versus 3 to 5%. But it makes 90% more or more, pro, uh, 90 times more profit, 18% versus 1150. I mean, it's a huge difference. And what that means is that a campaign like this with a, uh, a partner who is properly equipped and properly funded with the right tech stack and access to the right data means that you can achieve your outcome in probably half the time and for about one-tenth of the cost. Now, find me an investor that does not see that as an upside for them. Yeah. So my challenge to all of you is to rethink how you're approaching your go-to-market. Stop thinking about the short term. Think medium to long term. Yes, you have to keep the lights on. But if you keep your medium to long term pipeline as your primary focus, in six to nine months, you will never, ever, ever have a short term pipeline problem again. So you'll never suffer feast and famine. You will also have the ability to pick and choose which opportunities you want to pursue and who you don't want to, because you want to get closer and closer to your hero customer all the time. I mean, imagine how good that could get if all you were doing was working with your hero customers and they were buying multiple products and services from you and then bringing their wealthy friends to do the same. That's what a campaign like this or a, a partnership like this can afford you. Or you can use it to try and make up some short-term pipeline issues uh, and then you can fire them in three to six months. <laughs> yeah. Christian, we're coming to the top of the hour. What, uh, it, what would you like to summarize back to the audience in terms of the key takeaways you know, that you'd like them to walk away and implement? Yeah, I, I think it, the first thing is is shifting the mindset from, you know, we hate using the word even lead generation because we think about it in terms of building relationships. And I haven't coined it a, a great term, but, you know, think about this as building relationships, not at generating leads. I think that will change your mindset as nobody, you know, thinks about uh, relationships in the short term. They're thinking about it more long term. Uh, so I think that's number one. Uh, I think if you're considering doing this, if you don't have experience, you really want to make sure that you're working with a partner or you're, you're either willing to make the right investments for the next 24 months or you're going to work with a partner that can get it done for you. Because if you're going to go at it and, and not go in enough, you're not going to see the results and you're going to be unhappy and, and think it doesn't work when it really just, it was a lack of capital that, that you put against it. 
it goes all the way. I mean, that's from the people that you're going to invest in. That's the technology tools that you're going to bring in. And, you know, and do you have the right process in place as well? So this can be highly successful for you, but you have to have the right mindset and think long-term with it. Excellent advice. Okay. You've got a golden ticket. We can go back and advise the idiot Christian age 23. What one choice bit of advice could you give him that you know he would have probably have ignored but would have benefited from? Yeah. Uh, wow. Um, you know, I think I always ask my or think to myself, you know, I was successful in the business that I ran for a long time without any of what I just talked about here today. And yeah. I wonder, you know, what could have that first business been like if I did have a more strategic sales process and what could it have been, been done now? But to your point, I was brash and, you know, I thought I had it all figured out. But the reality is uh, there was, I probably left a huge opportunity on the table. I'm very happy where I ended up today. So I have no regrets to it, but it would be a fun, you know, exercise. So if you went back and you started that business again today, what would you do differently? To be honest with you, I wouldn't be in that business uh, today. What I've also come to realize with that business is that, I was working with a lot of small businesses at the time, you know, a lot of the concert promotions. And I think now I'm much more comfortable working more on enterprise. Uh, what I've just found is that it takes almost the same amount of work to try to close a small or, you know, business as it does take a large business. Yet, you know, you can make a whole lot more profit enterprise wise. So I guess part of my advice there would be maybe, you know, think bigger uh, than what you're thinking right now. That's well, that's great advice. Yeah. I would add to that, recognize that the pie is big enough for everyone. And if you're really smart, make the pie bigger. Don't try and take a slice, just make the pie bigger. Because if you make the pie bigger, everyone wins and more people want to help. Excellent. Okay. What sort of content are you consuming? Books, audios, videos, podcasts that you'd recommend others? I'm big on audiobooks. Uh, I love listening to biographies of, of other successful entrepreneurs, thought leaders, business leaders. I oftentimes kind of joke, I don't really, I don't really have a mentor. I get that question sometimes, who is your mentor? I don't have one, a person necessarily. These biographies and these books and these documentaries that I read and watch, in some way, shape or form, they become my mentors. And I oftentimes, if I'm facing a challenge, I'll ask, what would Rockefeller do in this case? What would that person maybe do in that case? And if you start to get to know them, you you can almost lean on some of their their experience and bring it to life for yours. So that's really where I spend a lot of my time. Um, you know, I still like to stay on top of some of the more tactical type of podcasts and books, but I probably get the most value these days from you know learning, you know, standing on the the shoulders of the giants. Interesting. Okay, so who is in your brain trust? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, you know, I mean, recently, uh, you know, I've been Elon Musk is one. He's definitely an interesting character. I don't necessarily agree with everything he does, but you know, there's an unmistakable, he's done some big major things. So looking at, uh, at, at him has been pretty interesting. Uh, that's one of the, the latest books that I, uh, that I wrapped up. Interesting. Okay. What was the best lesson you've learned from one of your clients in this current incarnation? Lesson from one of my clients. I think one of the things that that really struck me from working with one of our uh, one of our clients in particular was the whole idea of of pushing them as well. I, I think sometimes we're scared of what the client may say, and are you going to ruffle their feathers and are you going to upset them? 
But a lot of times that's what they want, that they want. That's that, our that, job. That it's is our like, job. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that anyone wants uh, someone who's just passively going to say yes all the time, they don't pay us big bucks so that we can sit there and not. They pay us big bucks so that we help them get their outcome. No one buys lead generation or pipeline. Um, no, no one cares about any of that stuff. No one buys recruitment. When you buy recruitment, what you're really doing is you're trying to hire someone who succeeds in the role, gets better at, over time, and they stay for a very long time, making you lots and lots of money. No one buys training because they want training. They want the performance of their people to improve. Until agencies understand that no one gives a damn about creative and no one gives, they want to sell more shit. That's it. At the end of the day, if it's not selling more stuff, it has failed for certainly most of the agencies, the branding piece and whatever aside. But I'm just flabbergasted that after all this time, people haven't cottoned on that no one gives a damn about you, your company, your products or services. They want their problems solved. Why is it that we're so stupid as a species? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I, I ask myself that all the time, but we keep running in, we keep running into this and, and I don't know if I'm going to be the one to change it, but you know, I know at least at our organization, we, you know, we're going to push our clients uh, and if they're not comfortable with that, then they might not be the right fit and that's fine. Okay. So final question before contact details then, what are the values that you hire for in your team? You know, I think the biggest one, especially if we're talking more on the BDR side, is grit. You're going to get hung up on. You're going to get told to go to hell. You're going to hear everything under the moon, right? But you just got to keep, you know, you got to keep grinding and you got to be tenacious. Uh, you can't take no for an answer. And, you know, it, it seems basic. We just got to show up and just put in the work. Uh, right, as well. those, those are attitudes rather than values. I'm curious about the stuff that they will live or die by whether anyone is looking what are the qualities that you look for in terms of the stuff that's visceral i would say if we're talking more on that side at the end of the day you know i i put a whole lot of value and just in putting in putting forth our best effort no matter what you know and i'll give you a quick quick example here there's a client that you know is seems to be happy just paying us. The results aren't maybe where we think they would be. And we could probably continue collecting a check, you know, every month from them and, and they would be fine with that. Um, however, I'm not fine with that because to me, the results aren't what they could be and should be. So we are constantly trying to push them and say, we can do better, you know, together. And I want those types of people that are at the end of the day, they value their name is on the line here as well. Uh, and, and they're willing to put forth that type of effort and, and maybe lose the client, you know, because of that. But I would rather go down fighting than just kind of coast along and, and, and just be here to make a check that it's not all about the money. Fantastic. Christian, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, I think the best way is uh, through our website, christianbanak.com. From there, you know, you can link out to social profiles. I'm on LinkedIn, Christian Banak on there as well. We do have a free masterclass if you're interested in a little bit more about our philosophy on Outbound uh, that you could register for on our website. It's completely free. I have a newsletter that I put out every week with a little uh, motivational story uh, with also some different leads that you might want to follow up with. That could all be all accessed through our website, christianbanak.com. Excellent. Christian Banak, thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. So this is Marcus Cathy signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. 
If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Now, if you're an ambitious salesperson who is of the view that the market is changing and you need to learn how to play cooperatively, play nicely with others in order that you can thrive through the recession, then get in touch. I'm taking on two new coaching clients over the next three months to help them learn how to sell in the new environment. So if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughsiphonlast.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.